Welcome to the Tunneling Podcast. This episode has been created in partnership with Temporary Works experts, Ground Force Shawco. We start this episode atop the short stay car park at Luton Airport. From here to the north and to the south, you can see a deep scar through the ground, bustling with men, machines and much more. The more than 17 million passengers landing here every year from the four corners of Europe end their experience at Luton Airport with a bus ride. The airport, some 30 miles north of London, does not have a direct rail connection. The nearest rail line is the Thameslink at Luton Airport Parkway. One and a half miles from the airport itself and connected via a shuttle bus. This shuttle bus is the barrier to the future of this airport. So the, uh, the Luton Dark project is a, an enabler for the, um, for the expansion of passengers at Luton Airport. My name's Phil Hobson, I'm the project director for the Luton Dart, uh, representing Volker Fitzpatrick Keir Joint Venture, uh, working building the Luton Dart for uh, London Luton Airport Limited. So Luton Airport currently has a, uh, a legal uh, passenger maximum number um, of about 17 to 18 million passengers a year um, and over the growth over the last um, five ten years uh, Luton has very quickly got to a predicted um, passenger numbers for as it was for 2019 of 17 and a half million passengers so they're right on the limit of their passenger numbers going through the airport the limiter wasn't the the airport itself or the runway, the limiter was actually getting people to the airport. So the Luton Dart is an enabler to al allow people to come by tra public transport uh, to the airport. And so the Luton Dart connects Parkway train station up to the airport via a uh, funicular type uh, cable pulled uh, rail system. Without overcoming this transport bottleneck, the airport would not be able to fulfil its expansion ambitions. Which would see an increase in passenger numbers to 35 to 38 million people in the next 10 years. The DART is the starting point for it. If you drove into Luton Airport, you come uh, via a dual carriageway road that goes underneath the uh, taxiway Bravo. Uh, into the airport, which is almost like a lobster's net. You actually go in, drive into the drop-off zone or the, or the short-stay car park, uh, and then you, you're sent in a, a circular loop back out under the same bridge. So there's a lot of congested uh, space, uh, and Luton have uh, invested quite heavily over the last couple of years to improve Terminal 1 uh, and improve the passenger experience. Uh, and they've done a great job for that up to this point, uh, what they're looking to do is to improve that yet further by uh, removing the bus service because there is currently a bus service from uh, Luton Parkway train station up to the airport and replace it with the DART. Given the congestion at the airport site, building a cable pulled train from Parkway station to the airport is no mean feat. So as you, as you come out of Parkway station, there's a 50 metre rise within the first 500 metres up to the airport and then the, 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 the alignment thing runs along 
the, uh, the level of the runway and then, um, and then drops into the, the airport. A 50 metre rise over 500 metres is a terribly steep gradient to overcome. And then to plunge that train under the roads, taxiways and other infrastructure of the busy airport site meant the designer would have to call upon every trick in the book to get this project done. Tunnelling agent Richard Wildish says this project is a mini HS2. Our job is fantastic that we've got a viaduct, we've got stations, we've got two stations, we've got a tunnel, we've got a trough, we've got a running slab embankment. It's basically a mini HS2, 1 40th of the size. We've got a, a parkway train station which we to try and sort out that elevation, which is actually seven metres off ground. This is Phil Hobson again. The uh, initial run out of the station on the, on the dart is on an elevated viaduct, uh, which is some 15 metres off the, off the ground as it rises up. We then come across the A1081, which is the main um, dual carriageway into the airport, where we, we, uh, we've built a bespoke uh, bridge, or gateway bridge, which we built offline and drove, it, drove into place with uh, SPMT. Self-propelled modular transporters. Uh, and uh, and uh, built it over the weekend, which was quite, uh, quite good. Um, after that, we go into the, uh, the running slab. Again, the, the rise is around about 8% at this point. Um, as we go through the cut and fill area, diverting through the uh, landing lights and around the airport runway, uh, taking us up into the Midstate car park. Um, it's quite interesting because we, we have to go right way through the Midstate car park and car parking at any airport is tight. The tight site constraints through the car park and on the project more generally meant that sheet piling was the preferred support along most of the alignment. So similar startings, if you like, of a tunnel. Uh, we have no roof on it though, so it just becomes a, a, sh a shallow cutting in the, uh, in the car park floor. Uh, then as we go towards the, the, uh, the airport itself, uh, we arrive at um, uh, Taxiway Bravo, which is by the fire, fire station for the airport. Um, and then you become really, it's really tight. We go from the, um, from the south side of the, the airport and we have to get to uh, the, the airport itself by going underneath the taxiway Bravo, underneath the dual carriageway, which is already going underneath taxiway Bravo. So we're some 10 meters down underground at this point. Um, and then we have to go under the dual carriageway and stay underground, underneath a, a, a pedestrian footbridge, um, and then into what was then going to be an underground station for the dart. And then passengers would then come from seven metres below the ground um, up into ground level and then into the, uh, the terminal. That's the route. A 1.4 mile or 2.4 kilometre journey incorporating an elevated station and viaduct at one end, a grade and trough section in the centre and a tunnel and underground station at the airport end. All packed into a very busy, very congested site. In the, in the initial designs when, um, when the concept of the dart was, was first put forward, um, clearly a, a tunnel, a board tunnel, would have been the, um, probably one of the near cheapest options. But unfortunately there are constraints as, as, as you, if you board through the taxiway, the risk is that you, you catch uh, one of the fiber optic cables that holds the radar which is landing the planes. Uh, which all of them go through this taxiway. So there are some real risks in, in regards to knocking out the key services to the airport 
and equally, although the going under the taxiway Bravo um, had a five metre headroom, the moment that you came out the other side and you're under the dual carriageway, you only have about a two metre headroom. So your, so your headroom over the road tunnel was so shallow that actually any board tunnel would have collapsed in on the, uh, the boring machine as it was. A congested working room, a shallow headroom and an alignment packed with critical infrastructure meant a board tunnel solution using a tunnel boring machine was ruled out. Sheet piling the trough and the tunnel cut was the preferred option as sheet piling, which is where steel segments with an indented trough are driven vertically into the ground, interlocking each other, can be performed in a very tight space. And the job has been made even more challenging by the time pressure. Uh, if you bear in mind that this, this was pen to paper to, to contract signing and, and boots on the ground within probably about 18 months. It was a, cra it was a crazy amount of time from, from a concept to a boots on the ground. Um, um, so it wasn't a lot of time to, to talk about it. The problem was the airport was rapidly reaching its capacity limits. The shuttle bus could not cope with any more passengers. This fast projection of Luton Airport to 18 million passengers, they knew that they were growing so quickly. When we started in 2017-18, uh, I think the passenger numbers were in the 13-14s up to 15, I think at one point. And all of a sudden we are, here we are two years later, and we're into the nearly 18 million, which is their, which is their maximum point. So we've already, in the two years, we've reached their maximum point. From contract to boots on the ground, in 18 months. To deliver the project on time, the VFK joint venture needed to work along as much of the alignment simultaneously as possible. This meant breaking the project into multiple sections and breaking each of those sections into zones. Roads, taxiways and services passing through a given section can be diverted into free zones to allow excavation to progress at pace. While this project faced multiple hurdles to overcome, two things have helped them. First has been the reasonably favourable ground conditions. And second is a decision to bring in specialist teams to the project early to get their expertise and line up the necessary support. It would become apparent later in the episode that this decision was fundamental in meeting the client's tight schedule. The ground along the alignment is various steps of made ground followed by flinty clay sat on top of chalk. Tunnel section agent Richard Wildish. So it's actually been surprisingly uh, good quality. It, it stands up quite quite nice and steep when we need to do our um, our batters. When and the good side of the uh, cut and cover tunnel is that we we don't have any um, the water table is well below our tunnel dig, so um, we don't have water coming into the um, coffer dam, and we're we're able to progress quite neatly with that. The tunnel is located at the northern end of the project. It delivers the trains from the airport station named Central Station. The tunnel section is broken into five zones. The zones were excavated alternately, starting with the second most southerly section and the second most northerly section. So we had to construct the, the first two sections of the tunnel, zone one and zone two, which are apart from each other. Then throw a diverted taxiway on top of zone one and a diverted approach road onto the top of zone two. Then we could excavate and build the tunnel under the original taxiway line and under the original airport approach road. 
and join all the tunnel sections together. The first thing we had to do was the UXO survey, so that involved doing uh, probes every uh, four metres along the line of the sheet piles to make sure that we didn't hit any um, unexploded ordnance. After that was all completed, we then started the sheet piling, which ranged up to 18.7 metres long sheets. In that tight space, it was quite a challenge to, to construct that. After doing the sheet piling, we then excavated down to about one metre below um, top prop level and installed all the upper props in a sequence so that we could carry on excavating and installing the props at the same time. The level of temporary works throughout the whole of the project is, is quite immense. As you excavate in front of the sheep pile, the sheep pile wants to rotate about its, what we call a toe. And the toe is an element of the machined nose that is embedded into the ground. This is Andy Sims, Major Projects Manager at Ground Force Shawco. So as you begin to excavate, the sheep wants to rotate about its toe. And the stability of that sheep is reliant on the resistance of the ground in front of the toe. So a harder, stiffer ground, such as a stiff clay or a, a dense gravel, is much better at resisting that than a, a loose sand or a, a soft clay, for instance. Uh, in this particular instance, it was a mixture of uh, clay overlying a, a chalk. With, without propping, so in a cantilever scenario where there's no props, you usually can achieve depths of between three and five metres using sheep piles. Once you get beyond this, and in this instance we're up to depths of around nine metres in some locations, um, you have to stop the sheep from rotating, so you have to give it additional support, so more support than just the ground. So then you, what you do is you put a temporary prop at the um, top of the sheep pile, and once you've done that, the prop can no longer rotate about the toe, and instead the mechanism of failure changes. So rather than rotating about the toe, it's now restrained at the top by a relatively stiff frame. Um, so it wants to rotate about that frame and instead of the top moving out, it's now the toe that starts to move out. So you can use this method up to, with a single prop, up to depths, depending on the size of the sheets and the size of the props and the stiffness of the ground and things. It works on sheet piles up to around nine, nine, ten metres. Um, but in instances where you've got high surcharge loads or you've got poorer ground or you've got potentially chalk that's been fractured, uh, in this instance here, there was obviously the loads from the planes on the taxiway, which provide the high surcharge load. There is also an embankment and a multi-storey car park. So in that instance, the, in some areas, just a single prop at the top wasn't sufficient. So in that instance, where the sheet is uh, essentially failing in rotation because of the lack of resistance from the ground at the bottom, it's then necessary to introduce an additional prop a little bit further down. So. In, in this instance, I think we excavated around five, six metres, installed an additional prop, and now you've got two props providing additional resistance uh, and stopping the sheet from rotating. With the second prop in place in the lower section of the tunnel, the team are able to excavate down to the formation level and cast the base slab. Some 600 millimetres thick concrete. Once up to strength, the lower props can be removed for casting the walls and the roof. The top props can then be removed, the sheet piles cut off below ground level and the site backfilled. The tunnel zones are built as four-sided coffer dams, roughly 100 metres long and 12 metres wide. At the interface of the tunnel zones, where one zone is connected to another, there is a headwall. What would happen is you would install the sheet piles, 
install the top level of temporary pop-in, which is above the soffit of the proposed concrete tunnel. Uh, you'd then excavate down, install a lower level of pop-in, excavate to formation level, construct the base slab, which in general was 600mm thick. That would allow you to remove the lower level of pop-in. You would then construct the tunnel, walls and the roof. And once those were constructed and propping the sheets at a higher level, it would allow you to remove the top level of props. At the ends of the cofferdams, the tunnel was only cast up to three metres away from the end of the cofferdam. So in order to remove the propping, you had to support the headwall sheets because there was a void between the tunnel that had been constructed and the, the headwall sheets. So what happened there was a temporary, small temporary frame, approximately 12 by three metres, would be installed against those sheets and then propped against the, the roof of the tunnel. And doing that allowed the main propping to be removed. What would then happen is when you came to do the tunnel, continue the tunnel, so the adjacent zone, you would install your sheets as normal, cut a hole in the headwall sheets at high level, which would allow you to bring a frame continuous frame through from the new zone into this three meter section of the old zone. And that would then take over supporting the sheets. And then as you excavated the new zone, once you got to a certain point of excavation and the headwall sheets were no longer doing anything to retain the ground, those headwall sheets could be removed. And that would then allow you to then construct the, the new zone and connect the new part of the tunnel into the existing part of the tunnel. So there was quite a lot of interface there between the two tunnels um, to enable that to work. The particular area that was challenging was the, the bit directly underneath the wingtip zone of the planes. So we had to do that at night shift um, in a limited time. So we get four hours um, in airside to be able to do that works. Cutting under the taxiway has thrown up its own set of challenges for the site. There are very strict rules on separating and protecting the air side of the airport. The side of the airport you need a passport to access. So building the tunnel, moving taxiway Bravo onto a temporary taxiway, and then building the second half of the tunnel. Uh, when you do that with a car, a car is pretty much defined in the, the lane width of the carriageway. When you do that with an aeroplane, the wings are wider than the taxiway. So you, you end up with this overlap of wing space. So although we move the temporary taxiway as far away as we possibly could, you're always going to have this wingtip um, oversailing the previous excavation. Um, so clearly you can't build uh, under a wingtip because uh, you, you, you you've got to have an airside fence for security. So there's a, there's a solution we came up with um, was that we went to the CAA uh, approval body for the airport and proposed that we would put a horizontal airside fence. The birdcage, which um, is almost like a, a horizontal <laughs> site boundary almost. It's, it's fencing so you can walk on top of, you can hook up the crane to it to be able to lift it off. So we would extend from the, from the line of the, the join of the tunnels, between the two tunnels, we had about a uh, 10 meter uh, overlap and that 10 meters was taken up by a 10 meter uh, horizontal fence um, with a, then a vertical fence. So the wingtip was actually, um, we were actually building underneath the wingtips of the, the aircraft with a horizontal and vertical um, airside fence, secure fence. It was quite an interesting and unique solution to a, 
a space problem we had with the, with the uh, taxiway. Designing the temporary supports is a trade-off between the size of the props and the space between them. Or, looked another way, it is a trade-off between the cost of the props and the speed of the construction project. So, two levels of props for instance, generally your lower level of prop will be within two to three metres of your formation level, your, your total excavation depth. And that can be quite problematic because you can't, your machines have to work in between props to excavate it, so you can't you can't have machines going underneath the props when you've only got two to three metres of clearance. So what you then get into when you're designing the propping is how far apart can we space these props? Because that, that ultimately, the further apart you put those props, the easier and faster it is to, in, to excavate. But again, that's a trade-off with cost. The props were Ground Force's modular propping system. This system has the advantage over traditional fabricated props because the system allows for variation on site and adaptation and reuse along the alignment. There's very high loads involved on this project. In some areas the loads were in excess of 900 kilonewtons a metre, which is far more than you would experience on your typical building job. And that meant that prop loads in some areas we're in the region of 4,000, 5,000 kilonewtons when we spaced the props at around seven to eight metre centres. The diameter of the props was between 610 millimetres and 1,220 millimetres. Generally, modular suppliers have set tube sizes and so once you exceed the capacity of one, then you move to, a, you move to a, the next size up. As the size of the props increases, doubles, the cost of the props follows a similar line. Increasing the space between the props means increasing the load each prop must bear and therefore increases the size and the cost. So a frame consists of two different elements uh, to prop the sheets. Uh, firstly, there's a beam that is spanning horizontally against the sheets. And this is uh, what we call a whaler in the industry. It's generally a UC section, a universal column, or a twinned universal beam. The cheapest scenario from a propping perspective would probably have been on this job to have a series of props at four and a half meter centers with a relatively small beam as a whaler but that then throws up a whole host of logistical issues so you've got to excavate between those props so you've got to use smaller machines you've got to drop machines between the props there's more chance of you striking a prop because all your lifting operations have to be closer to the prop when you're constructing your tunnel uh, you've got to drop your formwork panels in between the props. Those formwork panels now have to be smaller, which means you've got more lifts. So there's a big trade-off between minimising the cost of the props and maximising your productivity. Small props mean small centres and therefore less space to work between the props. When casting the permanent tunnel support, this will mean less room for your formwork smaller machinery and slower delivery. That was even more true at Central Station. Where the excavation method was dictated by the postage stamp size footprint of the job site. Right next to the terminal building. I'm just driving from Parkway to Central, so I'll be up there in about maybe one minute. 
so it'll be fine if I can start chatting and then when I get there I'll just park up and we can carry on. This is Dan Hobson, he is Central Station Section Manager with Volker Fitzpatrick Keir. So I, I'm uh, responsible for, for the construction strategy, build, program, budget for uh, Central Station, that's my, my baby. Central Station is being built on the footprint of the airport's old drop-off zone. It is around 50 metres from fence to fence at its widest point. The actual Central Station building is 20 metres wide from outside of pile to outside of pile. So you can imagine we've only got, you know, only 10, 15 metres on either side of the station to, to logistically operate. If you were to try and build that as an open excavation, you've reduced the 200 by 50 metre site down to a 15 metre strip down either side and trying to dig a, a 10 metre deep excavation over that kind of footprint logistically is, is almost impossible. The problem was identified early in the design stage and worked on as part of the design development process on the project. The solution? To build half the station top down and half the station bottom up. The platform area is con constructed using bottom up techniques where temporary steel propping is installed and later replaced with permanent propping. The maintenance area is constructed using the top-down method where a concrete slab is installed at ground level to prop the top of the piles and then a temporary set of props was installed lower down allowing excavation to formation level. Once the base slab was cast the lower level of propping could be removed. Generally, bottom-up construction is faster and preferred for civils works, but in this instance, because, the, because of the constraints of the site, there wasn't much space to set up a site compound and to store materials, so therefore it was decided that part of the station would be built top-down, which gave them a slab to store materials. Due to the top-down nature of this section, that's why contig piles were utilised because the uh, vertical loads from, from the slab were much better resisted using contig piles than sheet piles. The maintenance area doesn't need to be um, open air. We don't need that kind of light element in the permanent case. So let's look at um, building the slab first and being able to use that space. So imagine now we've got uh, a site that's 200 meters long, 50 meters wide, but half of it is now usable space. So the, um, the way we went about that was to obviously build the top-down slab first to then operate from that slab to then build the bottom-up section, excavating using the slab as our turning point, excavating uh, landing areas to dig and load and then obviously excavate underneath the slab as we progress that way. Central Station is divided in two. The easterly most end, which will later be the maintenance area for the trains, is constructed using a top-down approach. This means continuous flight auger piles, known as CFA piles, are installed to create a three-sided cofferdam. A pile cap and ground slab, which will later be the roof slab, are cast together in base to prevent cracking. The muck is then excavated from under the slab. The walls are temporarily propped and then the lower section excavated and the base slab cast. The top-down end of the project required 180 CFA piles. The passenger end of the station is the westerly-most end of the station. The track alignment turns from a north-south alignment to an east-west alignment as it enters the airport. Here, the excavation walls are sheet-piled, as with the tunnel. 
So in hindsight, it would have been better to CFA the whole lot because the CFA piles didn't really have too much problem with the ground type, the ground material we've got here. So we've got a, a, a large uh, kind of capping layer of, of made ground because obviously built up area, we loot in the airport. It's been dug up and relayed a few times. So there's, there's a good couple of meters of made ground gravelly material on the top. Then you hit a um, six or seven metre band of very firm clay. Not as firm as like London clay, but kind of not far off. It, it held its own shape kind of kind of um, clay. And then below that you hit a, um, a chalk, chalk kind of layer. But as you got closer to the, the change of materials, it, cut, it, very, it marbled up quite a lot. So you couldn't, it's not like you dug down and you found a defined line that went clay chalk. It was a bit a bit mixed up together and the reason i make that point is because the chalk held its held its shape when it was dry but as soon as it got wet turned to toothpaste so during the during the cfa piles when we hit a band of chalk you could you could see it as the as the material was churned back out um of the auger it would just come up in this this white watery tasty mess whereas the chalk the, the clay would come up in in chunks and nice little boulders it was easy to manage the sheep piles are obviously trying really hard to drive through the stiff the stiff clay when we hit bands of chalk it fired through it because it, it was a bit soft but then obviously you've got the 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 kind of stiff sticky nature of the chalk affecting the pile all the way down so we had a lot of vibration and, and hammer issues putting those piles in and obviously when you're in a built-up area like luton airport you've got people passing by you all the time the, the noise was the, was the biggest effect we had from those piles. With the piles driven, Dan Hobson and his team can get to work casting the massive concrete slab and 1.5 metre thick capping beam atop the CFA piles. One of the biggest issues we had with the slabs was the fact that we, we ended up hitting the slab pouring time in the programme through winter and then into, the, um, into January, February of uh, 2018, 2019. So it was a really cold year as well. This meant that rather than worrying about controlling the cracking on each day of the roughly 400 cubic metre pours, the team had to worry about the cold concrete landing on frozen rebar. The batching plant in Luton had no hot water facility, so insulation blankets and delaying pours were the only options open to Dan. So we had to run, run with quite controlled pour plans, insulating the rebar pre-pour so we didn't come out um, with a frost on it when we started the pour and then using the same blanket insulation on top of the pour following the finish um, to make sure we kept that heat in for the curing period. That's the, the main specification issue is the, is the concrete temperature. If it's cold outside, as long as the concrete temperature is right, then we're, we're able to go ahead. At every stage in every section of the project, time is tight. When making plans during the pre-construction phase, Dan set out a conveyor belt approach to the construction methodology. Establish multiple working faces so as one zone completes one task, the next team can take over and everybody shifts down one. When I sat in the office pre-construction, trying to twiddle my thumbs, trying to eagerly get ready for a start of site, this was one of my kind of um, strategies. So uh, what we looked at was how do we maximise the space? So obviously, which we've already touched on before, the, um, the conveyor belt of while we're completing the slabs down at one end, we'll start the excavation at the, at the front. Taking that down into a step lower, there's, um, there's a two-layered excavation required. 
Uh, first, first dig depth down to four meters for the first crop layer, and then the next dig depth down to the full nine meters, 10 meter line uh, for the base lab. So we had to buy time between the two excavation points to put the props in. The only way that would be possible is if Dan staged the excavation, the prop install and the second phase of the excavation in a conveyor-like sequence. That's where the, the middle excavation hole in the roof slab was born from, because what, what we identified was when you're digging over the edge of the roof slab at the interface between the top down and bottom up construction zones, once you get 50 metres in, so halfway along the slab, you're spending so much time and having an extra plant down there, dumpers and, the, and, and dozers and the like, to, to move the material back to the excavator. The back and forth journey under the already cast roof slab would be a limiting factor on the schedule. Your, your limiting factor to the speed of the dig is no longer the, the excavators in the hole or the grab at the top. It's now how fast you can move the material from excavator one in the hole to excavator two lifting it out the hole. So by, by introducing a, a second dig point 50 metres along, so halfway through the slab, we were able to kind of cut down that distance they were having to travel with the material before it was lifted out the hole to kind of reduce that wasted effort. The entry point in the slab then became the backbone for the entire construction sequence. If you kind of visualise, we have, um, I'll, I'll say the grid lines so it makes it a bit easier to understand. So. Uh, Gridline 10 was the interface between the roof slab and the uh, bottom-up construction zone. Um, and the end of the slab was Gridline 20. So you can see it's a, and each Gridline is 10 metres 10 meters, uh, spacing. So we've got Gridline 10 to Gridline 20 is the, is the roof slab. Gridline 15 was where we introduced a new opening in the slab to allow us to uh, introduce that second excavation point. Um, so what we did, we started the excavation of Gridline 10, progressing towards Gridline 15. That's 50 metre length, uh, digging down to that first prop zone, prop layer, so four metres down. Um, once the excavation got to uh, Gridline 15, the top excavator was moved to Gridline 15, and the excavation continued at that level, four metres down, up to Gridline 20. At the same time as moving the excavator, we introduced a crane position at Gridline 10, to now start lowering down the props and start installing the props underneath the slab from gridline 10 to gridline 14, so just to keep that safety zone between the excavation and the, the props. As the excavation progressed from 15 to 20 at the higher prop level, the, the, uh, the props completed from 10 to 15. We were then able to start the second excavation phase at gridline 10, digging down to full depth while we were still excavating at gridline 20 to the first level. Obviously then the props moved along. The props then were dropped in through the middle excavation hole to install the props from 15 to 20 as the excavation finished. And then as the excavation to the full depth progressed towards gridline 15, top excavator moved again like the first one and we started base labs from gridline 10 progressing towards 20. So we were always carrying out maximum of three activities, dig, prop, dig, or prop, dig, base lab through the 200 meter long zone rather than one and the other over the full 200 meters which was um, key to, to making the program work with the um, the constraints and the times we had and the, the kind of elements involved. 
These adaptations in the original design created fundamental improvements in the logistics and the schedule. Dan is an outspoken proponent of early contractor involvement, arguing that more improvements can be made to project designs before work starts on site if engineers with good site experience became part of those design teams. I think design companies need that, that construction expert, that's the type of people who have built the stuff before, for them to bounce back and forth off, not just for the initial concepts, but actually through the process to be able to go, how would we build this? How would you do this? Like, to bounce those questions off. And Dan is a man that practices what he preaches. He identified early on in the project that the temporary works element of the job was going to be a considerable undertaking and decided to consult the experts early. Before construction started, I looked after both the tunnel and the central station areas. In my world was all of the props. So I was looking across both sections to uh, to understand the best and fastest way to put the props in and out. Dan says when working through the tenders there were two systems on the table. One was a traditional fabricated prop system. Which is where the prop itself is made off site specifically for the project. The second was a modular system. That is erected on site from a fleet of components. Obviously there's, there's a premium you pay on the, the higher rates for the, for the system props, but yet there's a, there's a time and a fabrication cost for the uh, specialist, uh, say, fabricated steel props. As Dan was tendering for the props, he was still thrashing out the plan for how he was going to actually build Central Station. So I hadn't got a clear picture when we first started the tender stage, so we were open to all of the options. And actually what clinched it in the end was the, um, was the design involvement from the, the temporary work specialists who have a team who are dedicated to that design world because then they, they're able to, to manage, come up with solutions and, and re relay that back to me and I've got something to bounce off of. Whereas with the fabricated steel props, it was something that I would have had to have dealt with with a designer who isn't maybe a, uh, an expert in temporary works. Maybe props aren't their number one focus. I think we got the better solution as a result of dealing with a company rather than an idea with a contractor, a designer and a material supplier. It was like a package deal rather than uh, separate elements. When I had to sit down with, with Andy um, and Mark and went through the scheme, um, they come up with some ideas. It was, it was a really refreshing meeting to have, to be able to put ideas on the table. Then he came back with some changes, some thoughts. Oh, we think we'd do this. Here's some options. It, was, it kind of took the burden off me a little bit more, allowed um, you know, more brains to better than one. One of the key factors that influenced the design of the construction sequence at Central Station was the flexibility of the modular propping system. The actual adaptability to fit the lens um, was where I then developed the, the thought process of using the, the hole in the middle of the slab to lower the props down because there's a balance of how big of a hole you can make in a slab before it becomes you need temporary props and things like that. So we um, we ended up with a, the hole we had at, at Gridline 15 to do the excavation. We, we enlarged to five metres by five metres. This limited entry point under the slab ruled out the possibility of any fabricated prop at 1,200mm diameter being able to span a length of 20 metres. So it was the modular 
system from ground force that we actually developed that idea around and said okay we can use these these two meter three meter sections of um of prop and lower them down in pieces and actually build them below the slab and then install them and that was uh, one of the key drivers that actually made made us make the decision to go with the uh the, the hired system rather than the fabricated system was the adaptability to um to make the prop shorter by 100 mil if we needed to this is andy sims from ground force again big advantage was that because we'd had early involvement we had a very in-depth knowledge of the scheme uh, and that meant that in terms of writing design briefs and getting designs and and deliveries to site right first time we had as much as an understanding as them as to what their construction sequence was were so I guess such a part of their delivery team in some respects. Well Luton Dart was just a fascinating project to be involved with. This is Mark Whitmore, General Manager for Major Projects with Ground Force Shawco. Because of its complexity it wasn't the kind of scheme where you could simply look at some indicative propping solution drawings and then put together a commercial proposal. Fortunately, Dan and the team at Luton, they really engaged with us and they were open to suggestions and discussions about evolving the temporary work solutions, uh, making them as efficient as possible, the interaction between that element and other elements of work on site. And it was challenging for us because from the initial proposal that we put in to supplying the first props on site, was only 12 weeks. And given that this was the largest project that Ground Force had ever supplied, there was a lot of work to be done behind the scenes. And obviously the solutions refined and developed over the past 12 months only through very close collaboration. The biggest challenge with the top-down approach was that there was only full access from one side of the maintenance area. At the other side, there was only access available through four by four meter holes or penetrations in the slab. This meant that you either had to excavate from one side only uh, and pass all your materials in from one side only, or all materials had to be broken down such that they could be fitted through the penetrations in the slab. Going for a modular system helps cope with the restricted access. But logistically, the project was not over the line yet. How do you build an 18 tonne prop in a, a four metre headspace. Pick this prop up in, in complete open air, you're talking a hundred tonne crane minimum to pick these props up. So, and you can't put a hundred tonne crane in a four metre headspace underneath a slab. We looked at uh, outside of our industry and said, well, how do, they, how do they make things this big outside of our industry? Well, they look at gantry cranes in factories. And we went, well, we've got a, a metre thick concrete slab sat directly above us. Why don't we make a gantry crane? Put some lifting beams on the on the roof, run some um, some steel girder runners underneath, lifting chains, and then we're away. So that was that was the the brainchild of the of the idea. And obviously, to make this work, we had to have that 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 kind of first concept so early on that we were able to cast in the the Halford channels and the the connection points into the roof slab before we cast it, before we excavated underneath. So again, that pre-planning element made this possible. Not, not knowing what props we're going to use would have caused us to get to the excavation and go, oh, how do, we, how do we put these props in then? And we wouldn't have been in position to be able to fix into that soffit 
and take those kind of loads. By, by utilizing the cast-in helping channels, we were able to spread the load into the slab and, and actually utilize the beams. And excavation progressed from the open end of the maintenance area underneath the slab to the halfway point. Once this was completed to the underside of the lower frame level, the frame could be installed in this area. Whilst the frame was being installed, excavation at the back end of the maintenance area could continue and material was removed through the penetrations in the slab. Once excavation in the back area was complete, props were dropped through the holes in the slab in sections, in four meters long sections uh, and constructed underneath the slab. The advantage of using modular equipment was that there was no additional cost in breaking the props down into smaller components and it meant that they could be easily bolted together. Another advantage was that as things changed on site, the methodology could change and adapt without the contractor incurring any additional cost. The excavation was progressed throughout the maintenance area of Central Station in the top-down construction. The base slab cast, the props removed using the gantry-like hoist system and the walls cast in sequence. At the westerly end of Central Station, in the bottom-up construction of the passenger terminal, the sheet piling posed issues for noise and meant that work had to progress at a pace tolerable to the project's neighbours working in the busy airport terminal. The way the bottom-up construction section worked, being sheet pile walls, uh, those sheet pile walls have a, a concrete cap and beam on the top. We obviously built that at ground level, a similar process that we did for the, uh, the ground slab in the maintenance area. We uh, installed the temporary props on the concrete cap and beam. And again, one of those things about uh, con construction sequencing and forethought in the design, when we came to check the permanent works for the loadings of the props, we actually had to introduce quite a lot of rebar into the front face of those capping beams to take the point load of the props because of the, the spacings that they were installed at. The capping beam would act in a similar fashion to the temporary works whaler plate. The permanent props umbrella out from the four central columns. This capping beam will take the point load from the permanent props and deliver it into the ground. Those X braces obviously spread out quite a distance and, and, clear, and actually block quite a, a lot of space in the top of that excavation. And when you've got temporary props in and you need space to put your permanent props in, that ended up resulting in a prop spacing of uh, nearly 13 metres on the uh, on the, the top down uh, the bottom up construction section it was quite a quite a large load and bending moment going through those capping beams which i look back now and go but well, i don't i don't see how that has changed from design stage to when when we got down to doing the props but actually that again that's something that is high level enough to be identified in that design stage to to pick up and and allow for Having the temporary props in the same plane as the permanent props, utilising the capping beam, would have resulted in a, in a 13 metre spacing, so the capping beam would have had to have been um, strong enough to resist that, whereas we had to change it to make it work. The, the permanent uh, kind of finish to this area has a, a concrete lining wall which runs uh, vertically against the face of the sheet piles. Essentially what you end up with is a, a concrete box, concrete lined walls, concrete base slab, and then a 12 metre wide a uh, platform unit in the center, um, which is covered by the, the canopies. And that's where the, the trains run between the concrete wall and the, the platform in the center. 
and you run down some escalators from ground level to land on the platform between the two trains is, uh, is what it looks like in its permanent form. And then maintenance area um, is, again, one of these, I would like to think about who's going who's gonna to see our fine piece of construction. And in this, this situation, we've spent so much time and, and, and effort and, and construction, like good ideas and innovations to achieve that, that build. And it'll probably get seen by five people in its whole life. The wider lesson for the construction industry really is clear, uh, and that's early engagement. Clients and designers need to engage with the supply chain at the earliest possible opportunity. Uh, particularly on projects like Luton that are large civils heavy infrastructure works that are heavily reliant on the temporary works elements. So Dan said earlier that he's a you know a strong proponent of designers uh, interacting with contractors very early on and in turn we would encourage contractors to engage with specialist subcontractors and temporary works suppliers to make the whole process as efficient as possible. And I think what's been a really positive development in this area in recent years was the formation of a body called the Temporary Works Forum in 2010. And Ground Force were one of the founder members of that. And the aims really of the Temporary Works Forum are to promote industry-wide discussion of temporary works issues. And to that end, we encourage membership, not just from specialist suppliers, but also from clients, from permanent works designers, to just widen out that discussion about temporary works issues. The Temporary Works Forum, they publish guidance notes, which are now becoming really the go-to place within the industry for, for guidance. Uh, they look for innovative solutions and encourage early adoption of them where that's appropriate. And really, Temporary Works Forum has become one of the leading bodies in the world, not just the UK, on these matters. And it's just something that benefits the entire industry, really. The Tunneling Podcast is a production of Reby Media. I'm John Young. And I'm Rian Owen. This episode was created in partnership with Ground Force Shawco. Edited by Ross McPherson, script supervisor is Bernadette Ballantyne. Martin Noack is our series supervisor and Rory Harris is responsible for bottom-up construction. Special thanks to London Luton Airport Limited, Ground Force Shawco, Volker Fitzpatrick, Keir, Tony G and Hewson's. We'll be back next month with another episode. <laughs>